Please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. The last chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. It's on page 26 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 28. That's 26 in the New Testament section. As we look at the Scriptures this morning, I wonder if you realize how many, how many people who claim to be Christians give little or no credit to Jesus for their salvation. I can't tell you how many times I've heard such ridiculous things as Jesus' hands are tied. He has done all He can do for you and now the rest is up to you. And I always wondered, who tied Jesus' hands? Who, who did that? And, and they say such things as, well, God has made or cast one vote for you, and the devil has cast one vote for you, and you cast the deciding vote. And so the devil's vote is equal to God's vote, and your vote is more than either one of theirs? Such silly things. Denying the might and the power and the authority of God in the lives of men. And even in our day, multitudes wrongly believe that at this present time, Jesus is not ruling. Jesus is just waiting for a time that will come when he will rule. I wonder what he's doing. But people actually believe that at this time, Jesus is not ruling. His kingdom has not come. That will be later, they think. Well, I would like to take a few days, a few Lord's days, and turn our attention to the might, the power, and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for the next few Lord's Days, we will be considering His authority in all of the universe, and particularly in His church, which pertains to us. There are many passages in the New Testament that speak of this, and we will be looking at them for the next week or two. And now you're saying to yourselves, Wait a minute, Pastor! I thought we were looking at the appearances of Jesus. And you were preaching on the appearances of Jesus in the New Testament following His resurrection and prior to His ascension into heaven and you had us turn to Matthew 28 and right here He appears to them on the mount and He gives them the Great Commission. And we even can quote the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the age. I mean, we, we all know this stuff, preacher. Why are you stopping? Why aren't you looking at that? Well, who says I'm not looking at that? Did you ever notice what comes right before that? Look in your Bibles at verse 18. 
chapter 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. When did God slip that in there? I would imagine most people just gloss right over that and don't even realize what it says. And yet this verse, and I told you that there are several key doctrinal passages right here in his appearance on, uh, to the disciples on the mount. There are several key passages that are foundational for the church. Several key fat passages that teach us evangelism and that teach us how we are to live as a church, how we are to function as a church, what the hierarchy of the church is to be. And this is one of those texts. This is a profound text. And we're going to take at least two weeks, this week and at least next week, to look at what Jesus is saying here in verse 18, when he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So, this does come in the midst of our series, The Ongoing Work of the Resurrected Savior. This is one of the things he said in this appearance. And I remind you again that this is the only appearance of Jesus to the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew does not record how he appeared to them in the room when they were together. Matthew doesn't record how he met with them by the sea. Matthew doesn't record any other passage where the disciples saw Jesus other than this. And this is what he tells them. And this is profound. This is good stuff. So we've already seen and looked at his appearance on the shore, that is the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. We've also already considered some of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 17 and how he described the appearances of our Lord to several. And he even mentioned more than 500 at one time. And now we're looking at our Lord's appearance to the disciples on the mount. And I want to uh, just point out that we've already touched on last Lord's Day, why this is called the Mount. It is the Mount of Galilee. And this is the only record that Matthew gives of Jesus meeting with the disciples. And this is the only pre-arranged meeting that Jesus had with his disciples because Jesus told the women, go and tell them that I will meet them in Galilee. And this is that time. And that's why we think that this may well be the time when Jesus met not only with the disciples, but possibly with those more than 500 at one time. This was likely that time. And I've already given you several reasons why we believe that, and I'm going to give you one more in a moment. But this is why what we're looking at here on the Mount in Galilee. And then we also saw last week from verse 17 that they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now it says that some were doubtful, and we mentioned that that too was very likely a reason that we believe that there were more than just the 11 disciples, because by this time, the 11 apostles were not doubtful. They had seen him several times, and they knew it was Jesus. Thomas had already put his hand in his, his uh, finger in his, in his hands and his hand in his side. Thomas had already done that. 
So I doubt that the disciples were doubtful. So it's likely that there were more than just the disciples here. In fact, there may have been scribes and Pharisees and Roman soldiers gathered to watch them. And they were the ones who were likely the doubtful ones. But it says that the disciples worshipped him. And we looked at that word worship and we saw what it meant, that it means to bow and do homage And that's what the disciples did. They bowed down and they worshipped him. And we saw from several passages in the Bible how when men meet the living Savior, they fall on their face in worship. And it is so unlike what we find in churches today, where churches are just filled with hoopla and nonsense, and there's little of the awe and the reverence and the genuine worship for God. And we made the point, and I want you to understand it as I say it again, that worship is not what people want to do. People just think, well, we'll do this, and that's worship. And we'll do that, and that's worship. Worship is not just what people want to do. Worship is what the Bible says to do. And worship is bowing with reverence before a holy God. And so when we come, we come with a sense of awe and reverence and even godly fear, along with the joy and the excitement that comes with meeting the living God. But today now we move on and we see not only the mount in Galilee, the disciples worshiping, but the Savior as he draws near. And I'm only going to touch on this. It is the first portion of verse 18 when we read, And Jesus came up and spoke to them. Jesus draws near. Here we see our Lord in close familiarity with his disciples. Because that's who he drew near to. Verse 16, the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. Now here, we have reason to believe that though there may have been multitudes of other people there, Jesus came specifically and spoke to his eleven disciples. Now, it's not like others, if they were there, couldn't hear what he said. But he was speaking and directing his words to his disciples because we believe that here he is now. These men who would be the leaders of the church, these men who would then from this point go forth and spread the gospel throughout the whole world, right to us today. These men who would be the leaders of the church needed to know what to do and why to do it. And so he went right to them. Now, this is that other reason that we believe that there were more than just the 11 disciples here, because it says that now he draws near to them. And it's almost, if you can get the picture, that he goes past others who may have been there and went right to his 11 disciples. He drew near to them as opposed to others who may have been there. But that's the picture that we get, and that's what Jesus did. The other thing we know from this, or we can glean from this, is that here we have our wonderful, kind Savior showing His disciples that, yes, I died, I was buried, and I've been raised again, and I'm not with you all the time like I was before, 
but don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. I am not going to forsake you. He even goes on to say that at the last verse of the chapter. But here is a picture of it. He draws near to his disciples. And before I go on, I just want to say to all of us, this is our Savior. This is what he does. We may feel like we are at times alone. We may be in times of distress or in need. But when you know Christ, He draws near to His people. He strengthens. He comforts. He draws near. How many times have I said, I've told you this even recently in prayer meetings, that my own brother recently had heart surgery and things did not go exactly as they had intended. And I was saying to my own family and to you, I just don't know how people can go through times like this without Christ, without Jesus, without faith, without an understanding and a leaning on Him and the peace that He gives. And so He draws near. But not only that, we can draw near to Him. And that's why we often pray when we begin our service. Or when we're in the back sometimes. When we're here, when we pray, we ask God to draw near to us as we seek to draw near to Him in this special time of worship. But it doesn't have to only be worship. It is any time of the day or night we have the privilege as His sons and daughters to draw near to Him. Look back, if you would, to chapter 27 in my Bible. It's right across the page. Chapter 27, and this is right at the time of the death of our Lord in Matthew chapter 27. Look at verse 49. Well, we have to back up to 48. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, that's when Jesus gave his life on the cross. They didn't kill him. He didn't just die. You can't kill God. Jesus yielded up his spirit. His work of redemption was complete. He had taken the wrath of God for His people as He was on the cross. And then He yielded up His Spirit. In other words, He just died because of His own initiative. He yielded up His Spirit. Now what happens? Verse 51, And behold, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and all of that. But let me back up to the veil being rent in the temple. Here you have in the Jewish temple at this time, this huge veil. And I understand that this veil, it's not just what we would think of as like a a curtain or something like that. It was a veil that was like maybe that thick. It was a really thick woven veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament, you know that in the tabernacle and in the temple that God 
had them build the temple with a special place called the Holy of Holies, where God dwelled above the Ark of the Covenant, above the cherubim. It is the place where God was said to dwell in the temple. And the priest would go in there only once a year with offerings, of of blood offerings, into the Holy of Holies, only once a year. And you couldn't go in there if you weren't a priest. You didn't have access to that place where God was. But now, when Jesus died, completing his work of redemption, that is, taking our punishment on himself, taking the hell that we deserved on himself, and he dies and gives up his life, his, his sacrificial death being over, the veil is rent in two from top to bottom. It's from the top down, showing that it wasn't done by a man from the bottom up, but it was done by God from the top down. And what that signifies now is the Holy of Holies is open to you. The holy place where God is, is open to you and to me. The Apostle Paul, we believe the writer of the book of Hebrews, even writes in chapter 10 that we have now this access to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's a real privilege, you know that? In our prayer meetings, we've been talking about the fact that if you don't actually have Christ as your Savior, there is no guarantee whatsoever that God hears your prayers. Proverbs 28 and verse 9 tells us that he who turns away his ear from listening to the law of God, even his prayers are an abomination. But if you're saved, if you know Christ, if his sacrifice has been applied to you, you have this awesome privilege of going right into the very presence of the living God. So, Not only does he draw near to you, but you can draw near to him. This is what we see in this text in verse 18 of chapter 28. Jesus drew near to them. Jesus came up and spoke to them. And so we see here that he is speaking particularly to his eleven remaining apostles. Judas, of course, already having been uh, hanged himself. But now I want to turn from the fact that the Savior draws near and look at this very powerful portion of this verse and see the all-powerful head of all things. The all-powerful head of all things. And we're going to spend, as I said, at least a few weeks here. As Jesus comes up to them and says to them, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Let's take this apart a little bit. The first thing we see is that he says, All authority. Now, this is actually two words in the Greek. The the word authority is exousia, and it means the power to do as you please. 
You know, we like to think we have that ability. We like to think we have the power to do as we please, but we do not. But God does, and Jesus does. And so when he says that all authority has been given to me, he's saying that I have the power to do as I please. It is the ability and the power and the strength to rule. Now the other word, if you notice, if you look in your text, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority. And there the Greek word pasa or pas is each and everything. So it's every authority has been given to me. Jesus is telling them that he is the ruler of all things. He is the ruler of all things. He is the sovereign king. Now we're going to look into this a lot further. But let me just say this just from the word. It means that he has all authority. He has all power to do everything, anything that he ordains, that he wills to do. He is the all-powerful, almighty, and that is why we call him Sovereign Lord. This is who Jesus is, the Sovereign Lord. Now, I can remember back some years ago, around the time that I was first saved, that there was this raging debate over whether or not Jesus was Lord. You know... You can take Jesus as your Savior, but you don't have to take Him as your Lord. That's what a lot of people were saying. That originated, or at least partially originated, modern day originated with Lewis Sperry Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. As he wrote in his memoirs and in his works, that you can take Jesus as Savior, but you don't have to have Him as Lord. It was very popularized by Billy Graham. Billy Graham would tell people in his crusade, take Jesus as your Savior today. You don't have to have him as your Lord. Maybe you can have him as your Lord some other time. Well, I want to tell you right now that if Jesus is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. Because Jesus is by nature, by title, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him. And if whoever you have as your Savior is not this Jesus, you have another Jesus and you're lost. Jesus is Lord. He has all authority. Now, today I want to go a little bit further and look at this and see this phrase that he says here in the text. He came up to them and spoke, saying, All authority has been given to me. Now we're going to go back and understand what he means by all authority. But what does this mean has been given to me? All authority has been given to me. Now, Jesus was God incarnate, was he not? I mean, Jesus is God. He always was God. And as God, does he not have all authority? If you would, take your Bibles and look at John, that passage that we read. 
John chapter 1. I believe, again, it was page 71 in the New Testament section. Jesus, as God, already held the position of Lord. He already was eternal God. Here in John chapter 1, we read in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this goes back to very similar language as Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same thing. But John puts it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And we read in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word that he's speaking of in verse 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he's speaking about eternity. Before the creation of the world, verse 2. Verse 1 is before the creation of the world. And Jesus was with God from all eternity. So he was always God. Not only is He and was He eternal God, but He is Creator God. Verse 2, all things came into being through Him. Verse 3, all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is eternal God. He is Creator God. How much more authority can you have? How much more power can you possess? Everything was created by Him. All of us were created by God. Did you know that? Every little baby is a creation of God in the womb, Psalm 139. Every little baby is a creation of God. A beautiful creation of God. Yes, every little baby comes out of the womb as a sinner. But still, every little baby is a creation of God because the, Adam, the sin of Adam is imputed to them. But still, they're created by God in His image. In His image. Every baby, every kid. So that includes you when you grow up. You're created in the image of God. And Christ had something to do with that. How much more power can He have? How much more authority can He get? This tells us that He was Creator God. There can be no more higher status than He already had. He has always been and He always will be God. He is therefore by nature Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. It's who He is. So, what is Jesus saying back in Matthew chapter 28? When he says, all authority has been given to me. You have to understand what we're looking at. What we're looking at is Jesus just after he has been raised from the dead. Now I spoke a few moments ago about what happened when he was on the cross. 
and the work that he did while he was on the cross, taking upon himself the sins of his people, completing the work of redemption. That is, he paid the sin debt so that a sinful man can be reunited, can be reconciled to God the Father. Because now when one is saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, God does not look on that person and see their sin. He looks on that person and sees the blood of His Son Jesus and His righteousness, so you become every bit as righteous as Christ, and that's how you can go to be in the presence of God. Jesus had just done that. Days before this, Jesus had just accomplished redemption. And so what we find here is Jesus saying that based upon the fact that I have just accomplished redemption for my people, God has bestowed upon him, even if possible, if I can even say it right, greater authority, greater honor, greater glory. And I believe that this is borne out in Scripture. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is page 119. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says at the very beginning of this book. This is a great book. I mean, it tells us so much about the redemption of Christ and the work that he has done. But here's what he says first. Paul, bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, folks, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old. It's what God said would happen in the Old Testament Scriptures, and now we have that fulfillment in Christ. And he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Christ Jesus our Lord. But notice he says who was declared to be the son of God with Power by the resurrection. Now it is not and it cannot be that he was not the Son of God prior to the death, burial, and resurrection. We just saw from John 1, he was the Son of God. He was always the Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God from before the foundation of the world. So what Paul is saying here is that there's some greater honor bestowed upon Christ as the Son of God From the resurrection of the dead. From the dead. From His resurrection from the dead. He is declared to be the Son of God with even greater power. With even more power. The resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that He was the Son of God. And therefore, because of his resurrection from the dead, he is even more highly exalted. And that's what's taking place in Matthew 28. 
Jesus is coming up to them just after his resurrection, and he's saying, all authority has been given to me. In light of my resurrection, I now have every authority, greater, if I can even say it, authority, because of his resurrection from the dead. Look now, if you would, a little further in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. Again, Ephesians chapter 1. 150 in the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. If you would please look down to verse 19. Ephesians 1.19. He's asking that they would know, the saints would know, what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. He's talking about Jesus And he's praying and asking that the disciples to whom he is writing would know the great power, the surpassing power towards those who believe. Who is that? Christians, Christians who are believers. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Okay? He's saying, I hope that you know the great power and strength of Jesus. Now, if you would look over to the page, to verse 20. And it says that he is seated at the right hand in heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So he is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority. He is, therefore, the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. This is Jesus that he's talking about. He's above every name that is named. We're going to come back to this passage probably next week again. But I want to point this out to you now. How is it that he is this supreme ruler seated at, seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places far above all rule and authority. How is it, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead? The power, the strength, the rule, and the authority is somehow magnified as Christ was raised from the dead. And so when we see him as the resurrected Lord, the resurrected Christ, He is even more glorious, if we can say it. More powerful. Has more authority. Because he accomplished the work that he came to do. Gave his life on the cross for his people. Shed his blood to cover our sins. And God raised him from the dead. And said, Amen. This is my son. He has all rule and authority. Another passage, Philippians chapter 2. That's just over about 10 pages. 154. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. We are so familiar with this passage. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has a name which is above every name, and that every knee should be bowing before Him and will bow before Him. If you're not bowing now, you will bow in the day of judgment. But here Paul says that he has this name which is highly exalted and is above every name. Why? Look back to verse 7. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also. You see, because... He accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. He has been given a name which is above every name. How can you give God a greater name? And yet, because of what he did on the cross, he is even more highly exalted, if possible, than before. Now, we we can't fathom that. How can God be more exalted than God? And yet because of what he did, the scriptures seem to teach that he has been given all authority and power even more because of what he did on the cross. I'll turn you to one more text, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, last book of the New Testament. That would be page 171. I want you to look down, if you would, please, to this familiar passage that we think about and hear what's going on in heaven. And we see in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Of course, talking about the work of Christ. Talking about Christ and bringing praise to Him for what He did. And this tells us so succinctly what Jesus did. That He was slain on the cross. And with that sacrificial death, purchased for God with His blood, men from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Christianity is not isolated to one nation, to one people. It's not that, oh, people of the United States of America, we're all Christians. Well, first of all, that's way far from the truth. And second of all, there's a lot of other nations right now that have a lot more godly people in them than America does. Every tribe, every nation, every people. Jesus purchased with his blood. But then look, as he says further in verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain. 
Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So in both these verses, they're glorifying and praising Christ for giving His life to purchase and redeem the people that God had given to Him. And they're saying He's worthy because He was slain. Now, wasn't Jesus worthy prior to His crucifixion? Of course he was. But these, if you could picture them in your minds, are giving such praise and honor to the Son because not only was he God, but he went and became a man and gave his life so that you and I could go to heaven. And so you and I will be there and say the same thing. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You are worthy of all my praise, all my adoration, all my honor. Because you gave your life for me. But don't wait. Don't wait till heaven. That's what we're supposed to be doing now. That's what worship is. Coming to give praise and glory and adoration to the Christ who gave his life for me. So that I could go to heaven. Now I ask you to just back up a little bit in this passage, chapter 5. And look at verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Talking about Jesus. But he's standing. Dead lambs don't stand. It's a resurrection. So his death and his resurrection from the dead Give Him glory, honor, and power, and make Him worthy of praise and honor and adoration. He is worthy of even greater honor and more authority than ever because of His death, burial, and resurrection. So, back in chapter 28 of Matthew, this is what Jesus is saying when he says to his disciples, All authority has been given to me by the great God of heaven, blessing and bestowing upon his Son even greater honor, since he has accomplished the work that the Father sent him to do. One has said that Christ's resurrection from the dead was an instance for peculiar and special power and authority from God. And one also has said that this can be seen even as a reward for the accomplishment of the work of redemption on the cross. And to that I would say, Amen. Jesus is a great God, a powerful God. But when He gave His life, He became our Savior. And that's how we know Him. Our Savior, who is God. And we honor Him as our Savior. And if He hadn't given His life on the cross and been raised again from the dead, that would not have happened. But he did. And so we see him as our Savior, with all authority bestowed upon him 
by the Father. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Because of his resurrection, even as you see me here before you today, I have now even greater authority. I am even more honored by God. And there's a reason he's telling them this. It is foundational to the church. And hint, it's foundational to evangelism. We don't preach a weak, impotent God. We preach the powerful, almighty God who is genuinely able to save men. And yes, raise up men from the dead to be with Him in glory. This is what we preach. A God who is powerful, not a God who is impotent. And we'll examine more of what this means next Lord's Day. But first, I just want to impress upon you at this time that it is by Jesus' authority that every one of you remains alive today. You realize that? He's creator God. And He has authority. And all things are held together by Him as God. So you're here today by His power. You're alive today. By His grace. And you're here today listening to this about Him by His will. By His sovereign will. It is no accident. So kids, listen to me. Listen to me. Jesus is Lord and keeps you today out of the fiery pits of hell. By His will. Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he held his hands like this and he says, All God has to do is open His hands and you'd all fall into hell. But He doesn't. He keeps you. He keeps you today alive and able to hear about Him. That you, that you can hear about the truth of His Word the truth of who He is. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that He would draw you to Himself in saving mercy. Because I assure you, if you don't recognize His power in this life, when you stand before Him in judgment, you will most certainly recognize His power and His authority as King of kings and Lord of lords, as He consigns men and women to hell forever for rejecting Him. But I pray indeed that you would heed His call, that you would bow your knee to Him today, even as we read in Philippians, that every knee will bow. I pray that your knee would bow to Him today and you would cry out to Him for mercy, Before he judges you, for that day you will definitely know his authority. Oh, dear one, dear children, listen to your pastor today. Hear what Jesus says when he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I 
will give you rest. Heed his call and come by his spirit and by his grace. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Come to him and be saved. Let's pray.